Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Blooming Out. I'm Alex Ashkin. And I am Rachel Jones. And I am Frankie Preslav. Thank you for joining us for the new edition of Indiana's only queer public affairs radio show. We are conveniently posted on WFHB.org, so if you can listen, you can't listen live, you can hear this and other episodes online via the WFHB website. Each and every week, we produce a show by and for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally communities. Our listeners can always count on us to cover the most pressing issues, interesting people, and latest events reflecting TLGBQ plus life in Indiana, the U.S., and around the world. Our feature stories focus around topics both at home and abroad. We will be looking at some recent developments in the U.S. politics as we take a look at the recent beginnings of the Supreme Court cases. Case Masterpiece um, Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. You're right, Frankie. Additionally, we have we'll take a moment to discuss the recent interview on All Things Considered. Uh, with uh, Alexander Chandler, actually, scratch that, we're, we're actually going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court decision to throw out the case of Jamika Evans, who had sued her uh, employer in Georgia on a unlawful uh, firing case. But first, we're going to take a look at that Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. Um, According to the ACLU of Colorado, the case began when uh, David Mullins and Charlie Craigs visited Masterpiece Cake Shop in July 2012 with Charlie's mother to order a cake for their upcoming wedding reception. Dave and Charlie planned to marry in Massachusetts and then celebrate with their family and friends back home in Colorado. But the bakery owner, Jack Phillips, informed them that the bakery wouldn't sell the wedding cakes to the same-sex couple. So this is sort of an interesting case because this is largely, I think, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act sort of 2.0 on a national or federal level. Um, A big thing here when we consider it is the discussion of where does uh, providing a service begin and end and where does artistic expression and sort of putting your heart and soul into a product sort of start. Right. I think it's, you know, definitely. But, you know, I think what a lot of people are missing out also on this is that what the retributions could be as far as um, hanging up a sign, no gays. Um, When you have, you know, the... The, the capability of, of refusing someone to, to eat or to, to, you know, sit at your counter or whatever, that you're going to be ending up discriminating just not against the GBLTQ um, uh, people, but you're going to discriminate against a lot of people. And I think that's why 
you know, it's important for other people to really understand the retributions of what could happen with this case if the Supreme Court goes ahead and sides with the cake company. You know, daggone it, you guys. Okay, so this is considered faith-based. My feeling is starting to think that faith-based is more hate-based. Um, you're absolutely right, Frankie. It's starting right here with gay couples. Um, but where does it stop? And that's sort of an interesting question at the end of the day because there's really no guaranteed way. There, there's no um, sort of purity test in a sense about uh, where does one's religious expression begin and end. Uh, you could arguably say, perhaps I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I think that people who participate in modern medicine, you know, might not be appropriate or something. There's a lot of weird little uh, There's just actually no, no boundaries to where this stops and ends. And this is what's so scary about it. And, and how the courts, you know, basically specify on that we are only going to discriminate against gay people or bisexual or transgender. I mean, how are they going to write that, that it's not your religious freedom? You know, if you're a doctor and somebody comes in and maybe you're a Pentecostal and they're Catholic and because of your religious beliefs, you can't, you know, it sounds like it's crazy, but, you know, that could be a scenario that happens and say, no, I'm not going to serve this person. Or an ambulance driver shows up the house and says, you know, I'm not going to, you know, treat this person. Exactly. So, I mean, where does it begin and stop? And I think that's where the national press has really missed this opportunity to really explain to, you know, the citizens of, of what this is. It's not just a GBLTQ um, issue. It's an everybody issue. And don't, don't, let it be sugar-coated. So Trump's Solicitor General, Noel, Francis, Noel Francisco, said that businesses should be able to hang signs saying no gays allowed. So there's no pussyfooting around. Well, that's not really what it means. That is exactly what it means. Exactly. So where does it begin and where does it end? So we're going to open. And so hopefully the Supreme Court will have some, <laughs> you know, guidance and understanding. Well, even if it's not where does it and um, the fact that it's gay couples is enough. It should end right there. Exactly. Um, even if it didn't revolve the, uh, involve the possibility of it being a different religion or a different color, um, the fact that it's saying the gay couples aren't allowed is not okay. Well, and I think there's sort of an interesting thing here with your comments, Rachel, because I, there's sort of a long history of people in the Trump administration sort of openly stating that they view it almost diametrically opposite from you. We actually have a quote here from Pence in uh, 2000 when he was still a member of the Indiana Congress, and he said, Congress should oppose any effort to recognize homosexuals as a discreet and insular minority. That those are in quotes, entitled to protection of anti-discrimination laws similar to those extended to women and ethnic minorities. So he's really specifically saying, like, people who identify in the LGBTQ community, they're just people. They're, there's, not, there's no LGBTQ in a sense. It, they, they aren't a group. It's just people who share characteristics and if those characteristics happen to 
be sort of a target of discrimination. That's something that happens. I I, I don't want to put words in our former governor's mouth, but at the same time, I I can't help but think he's uh, somewhat giving the okay for this. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I don't think that's what he's saying. So so his words say that, but with his desire to pass a bathroom law, I mean, he's been an opponent of LGBT people from the very beginning. So what he's saying is don't protect these people because they are lesser than. I mean, that's his whole point. Mm -hmm. Well, it comes down if you're a sinner and what he decides is a sinner. You know, we're not going to... Thank you know, God he you. can decide that for everybody. Right, right. I mean... <laughs> well. yeah, and so the interesting thing to me beyond sort of the implications of what will be decided by this Supreme Court case is sort of the interest in uh, sort of what is going on relative to Indiana. Because in a certain sense... We've seen this discussion before. Well, that's, the, that's what's dangerous about people reading something that Pence says because they'll say, well, they're just – he thinks they're ordinary people and, and therefore they shouldn't be protected. But don't let the rest of the country be fooled. He doesn't think LGBT people are ordinary people. They are lesser people in his mind. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the interesting thing because – As we saw in 2013, we were confronted with our version of the Masterpiece Cake Shop issue where uh, Memories Pizza in Walkerton, Indiana, just about, I think it was two weeks after the passage of the Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, turned away an openly gay couple uh, because they didn't want to provide or cater pizza for a wedding event. I don't believe it was a wedding pizza, per se. I don't think there was a groom and a groom or anything like that. But uh, they, they said, you know, we're not doing anything related to gay weddings, receptions, whatever. We're, we're not doing it. And this caused a massive public backlash. The uh, you were going to say, Rachel? Well, no, you know what? I'm, I'm just trying to put the reverse foot on this. So, so and, and you too, Frankie, as both former cafe owners, if um, some right-wing group wanted to come and have me cater something, what, what would you do or what would I do? I think, I think I would have. And if they wanted to hold an event because let – the public figure out what is right. If they came to my cafe, I think my clientele um, would be able to judge for themselves. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it is a kind of the flip side of, you know, if you, if you, if you, if a, you know, the clan showed up at my, you know, former or actually came to me as a client. If they came as the clan, that's different because they have a history of, my God, lynching and violence. I mean, that's different than a, a gay wedding cake. Somebody coming in a sheet. But I guess people uh, will argue with you, you know, but what right do you have to discriminate against anybody? If it's a business that you're serving the public and, you know, your doors are open. Because they were breaking the law. If, 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 if. But how are you breaking the They're not. Because they lynched people. But that that's. 
I, I understand where you're coming from, Frankie and Rachel. I, I kind of see where you're s- as well, because it, I think there's a little bit of this interesting issue of uh, there's such a strong ideological difference that we sometimes feel uh, kind of pulled away. Well, it depends on what side of the aisle you're on. I mean, when, how the argument's going to go. And I think that's where it comes down to is, you know, when I talk to, you know, my very conservative friends that say, you know, why shouldn't the person not or be forced to make a cake for a couple if they don't agree? It's their business. It's they own it. Why, why do they have to go there? And so what's the flip side to that? Then go somewhere else. Why do you want to spend your money, you know, with somebody that hates you? I mean, so walk away and go somewhere else. Yeah, but it's it's the ability to put the sign up exactly. that says you are not welcome or you go to the back of the bus. Um, but that's the argument on the other side. Yeah, that? no, no, I get it. And point, counterpoint, this needs to be hashed out and, and people need to have an opinion and be passionate about it. Absolutely. And another thing that's sort of, I don't know, strange with regards to this case and how it might impact all of us on a broader sense is if we look back at, once again, Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act, there were some relatively kind of strange things that came about as a result of this. Um, so there, there's one very important line at the very beginning of this act that specifically says, uh, it, a government entity may not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion. Now, this is sort of the the crux of the issue here is that little phrase, both in the idea of personhood, you know, does this represent all organizations, all businesses, as we've already uh, gotten to in Citizens United, corporations are people, <laughs> as much right. as that's sort of backwards now, at least to me, um, that that, along with the idea of exercise of religion, are really sort of uh, unclear, amorphous, you know, very sort of gray, in a sense, terms. Uh, so one, there's some really interesting things that has kind of come up about this. The one that I always kind of point to is Indiana's First Church of Cannabis. That one came up because uh, actually back in the 90s, when we started seeing the first few RFRA laws getting passed, particularly in the American West and Pacific Northwest, it was being used by a lot of Native American groups so that they could use uh, specific substances that would otherwise be banned because of federal or state laws saying, hey, you know, we have our own localized religion, and this has a very specific, like, ritual-esque or uh, sort of significant religious role in our ceremonies. We need to be able to use this. And so even in Indiana, they sort of took that on and said, okay, well, we're going to start a church where... We smoke pot <laughs> mm-hmm. because that helps us, you know, relate closer to our creator or however their language is. Rastafarians. It, well, you would sort of think that, but also simultaneously not at all like that. <laughs> it's sort of funny because um, I think 
if a Rastafarian took a look at the first church of cannabis in India, they'd probably, you know, maybe sneer at it a little bit. <laughs> but there, there's so many different levels that this is sort of going to take place on. And both sides have interesting arguments because at the end of the day, Right now, the the sort of debate is around the, the ability to discriminate or to at least say, we will not make that for you. Um, there's also a great quote that said, the, the real decision here is we will not make that versus we will not make that for you. <laughs> so uh, there's some really interesting questions here, like on a lot of levels. Like, here's a great question. What if we had a straight friend who came and wanted to get a cake for, you know, a gay wedding celebration? They don't make it clear about any of that stuff. Let's say, you know, it's uh, Steve and... Kelly. Kelly. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. You know, totally innocuous. It, It could be anyone. And so... At some point, if they're somehow informed that it is, in fact, you know, one way or another, it, is that now different? You know, is the context somehow changing this? I guess it's who you put on top of it at that <laughs> point. <laughs> what do the little characters look like? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it's, you know, you can go round and around and you make yourself crazy. You know? And, you know, and how, how will it end, you know, when, it, when it's all said and done is going to be, you know, I, I don't know. I just can't see if they side with the cake folks um, how that's going to work out. I, I think we need to look at something bigger, too. I mean, look at what's happened since this administration has started. And I'm uh, – got it. I'm, 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 I'm going political, but that's not my point as much as, you know, with – the Johnson Amendment being overturned, where now churches will be able to contribute to political parties, and with personal freedoms now being confused with religious freedoms as to what people can do, and corporations are now people, which would make this on maybe Bush beer doesn't want to sell to a gay bar. I mean, you know, at, there are so many personal liberties being challenged here under the name of religion, um, what do you do? Um, this week we are sticking with the weird weird styles of queer music from the 1980s with the pop group Dead or Alive. Fronted by English singer-songwriter Peter Burns, Dead or Alive embodied much of the energy and outlandish behavior seen in the 1980s. Burns, whose androgynous style was often compared to culture club vocalist Boy George, cemented his own unique style in the music video for Dead or Alive's first U.S. single, You Spin Me Right Round. With his well-known combination of a kimono-like gown, tight, long curls, and an eye patch, Dead or Alive, along with Culture Club, was able to introduce mainstream culture to many different forms of expression Uh, gender fluidity, and really changed the cultural landscape as a whole. So tonight, we'll open up with You Spin Me Me Round, off the record, Youth Quake. (laughs) 
We were just listening to Spin Me Around um, by Dead or Alive. We now return to the second half of our news discussion for the week with a recent Supreme Court case that impacts non-discrimination laws with regards to the hiring and firing of TLGP individuals. <laughs> the U.S. high courts turn away disputes over gay work, work, worker um, protection. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case of Jamika Evans, who is suing her previous employer, Georgia Regional Hospital at Savannah, over her wrongful firing. Evans and her representatives from Lamba Legal on uh, an LGBTQ uh, legal advocacy group um, argues that she was fired due to her identifying as a lesbian, which, um, which puts her at odds with officials at the hospital. So this is something that I think ultimately is sort of the continuation in a sense of how policies are changing in between both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, because a lot of this stuff is actually dictated through executive orders uh, if they aren't cemented by legislation. One of these executive orders that I can kind of bring up is uh, I believe in 2012, yes, uh, it was in the, the Equal Opportunity or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was instructed by the Obama administration to extend Title VII protections to LGBTQ individuals. What that means is that people cannot be discriminated in the hiring or firing of an individual because of sex, gender, or sexual orientation, which is a key thing, because sexual orientation is, in fact, not a cemented uh, immutable characteristic, something that uh, is guaranteed to be protected in civil rights laws. And so now we're sort of at a case where the courts ultimately will kind of decide whether or not this is going to continue to be in action, be, be enforced, because if they choose, you know, to side one way or another, it can totally affect how Title VII will be continued to be interpreted. Um, and I should clarify, Title VII is Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, <laughs> I should have said that earlier. <laughs> As a whole, though, uh, kind of allowing myself to editorialize, I think that this is an interesting issue because as we look at the groups um, so far, the fact that the Supreme Court did turn down the case gives us a strong indication that Title VII will remain with sexual orientation as a protected attribute. The reason why I say this is the federal court that heard it prior to being appealed to the Supreme Court case ruled in favor of Evans. That, that's what's so damaging about hate-based faith groups. Um, once the federal court, once the federal judges begin to be stacked one way or the other, then society changes. And we've got to humanize everybody to everybody. 
and remove church and state. I mean, that's why you get out and vote. You know, yeah, but but for but for but for two characters <laughs> that are both supported by. I mean, it's professional wrestling, you guys. Right. Well, you got to be loud and clear and scream a lot and get the groups together um, for this. You know, next three years at least. And support um, redistricting for that vote thing. Thank oh, you. Oh so yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. right. And so we're sort of at this like interesting point because we're definitely like getting to a certain apex of legal decisions here with regards to the LGBTQ community. And it kind of seems like, you know, who's sitting on what bench could be a huge determinant, as Rachel said. Yeah. If if you look at Alabama, and I, I I'm amazed, I lost a beer on this. Not that I really gamble, but um, <laughs> because and I'm so happy I did. Faith based doesn't have to necessarily be anti LGBT if these people were willing to support someone that was kicked out of the mall because he was chasing young girls, and that was okay. I mean, I think. These issues are being put before us and made to be divisive, and they don't have to be. Well, hopefully what, you know, what happened down there is that it'll at least have people wake up on kind of what's going on, that maybe people that weren't as interested or didn't understand what was going on of kind of what the agenda is and what, what, what could happen, you know, when, when we, we sleep and, and who might get in. Because, you know, if it, it, if it hadn't got a hold of, I mean, this dude could have been there and boom! I mean, it happens. It's, it happens now. If you go look at you know who's who's who are the the sitting senators now. They had the same press when they were running. You know, there's some some pretty yucky guys out there right now. Donald Trump's president. Yeah, there it we was go. Well known. <laughs> there we go. It was well there known we that he. Um, but I think a lot of people were sleeping and didn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. They heard it on national television. He admitted You're right, it. but it, I, I think that people just didn't believe it. I mean, I didn't. I mean, I heard it and I understood. And, and of all the wackos that were running for president at the time, um, I was like, well, you know, with the exception, you know, I can get hit in the pie with this one, with, the, with Hillary. Pie's coming. <laughs> no Bernie, baby. No Bernie. But at that point that people um, – we're like, you know, I was like, well, he's, he's just there about the buck. He's going to leave everything else alone. And, you know, in my little fantasy world, I didn't expect him to, to, to go to, the, to where he did. I never liked the guy, but I didn't expect him to go there because I just ex- assumed that it was about money with him and he was going to leave the other issues alone. Let's arm wrestle this after the top we, of the hour, <laughs> Frank. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to put this discussion on hold for a moment while we're doing events and weather at the top of the hour. Welcome back to Blooming Out. We now return to our to an interview with Cindy Hall, who spoke with, among others, Mariella Castro about the rights of LGBT individuals in Cuba. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Frankie and Alex. Nice to meet you. And I just want to clarify what I said about (laughs) redistricting. I meant change gerrymandering, but it's redistricting so much already that. we need to repeal that and get it where it's more equitable it's within gym, each area. A Jim Croce song with a jigsaw puzzle with a couple of pieces missing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. Though I think we could probably talk about redistricting and gerrymandering for an entire hour show oh my God. in itself. <laughs> so we're curious about Cuba and LGBTQ rights. Right. Uh, th- this is interesting because I've, I've frankly never been exposed to this sort of thing. And uh, I guess I'll start off. My general assumption when I think of Latin America a lot of the times is sort of like machismo, a little bit of, um, it, it's a little bit more, I wouldn't say aggressive, but it, it's, uh, you're kind of supposed to be tough and, you know. They're definitely faced with that because that is part of the, the culture and, you know, they're the first to admit it uh, within Cuba. But they've been uh, working on sex education. Apparently it started about... 50 years ago, and it was done through the Federation of Cuban Women. Um, there were six of us, I should, you know, as a little background, say that went over Thanksgiving week. And we kind of set up where we wanted to visit. So we did visit the Federation of Cuban Women in our sister city of Santa Clara. And we also uh, visited a center for um, public health and prevention of AIDS and so forth. Um, and a great club in Santa Clara that's called El Mahunje, which means the mixtures, which caters to everybody and has become kind of like a gravitational pull to many people from all over the world that come to the island uh, for TLGBT. Hey. Oh, I've got double T there. <laughs> um, so... Uh, but the high point, and I knew that Rachel knew of Mariela Castro and her work, and incidentally, she is the daughter of Raul um, Castro, who's the head, uh, wow. top guy in, in uh, Cuba, and she also sits in the parliament. Um, but she um, took over from the Federation of Cuba Women this uh, sex education, and they formed a group um, that's called the um, something along the order of the National Center for Sex Education. The acronym is CENESEX, but that's from the the Spanish. And um, because of her, I don't know if you want to call it cloud or whatever, she's been able to make very good headway. um, And um, she's, you know, they do research and everything. When we went to the office, we had requested a visit with her, not sure if we, you know, this is kind of a Big request, but right. but she was very accessible. Uh, actually, she was a little late because a, a close colleague of hers had died, and she'd been out at you know the service or something. And so um, we were like, oh, we're probably not going to get to see her. But then then <laughs> she showed up, and uh, we had a lovely conversation with her, just relatively informal. We sat around the table and could ask questions. We got to talking about the whole Me Too thing going on here. Of course, people in Cuba know so much. Because U.S. has such a profound effect on what happens to them with the embargo mm-hmm. and everything. They know probably more about our policies <laughs> than we do, especially the ones that, that affect um, Cuba. Um, so um, all these organizations tend to work together. Like when we visited the Center for uh, Prevention of Sexually Transmitted Diseases, uh, we did donate a bunch of condoms because <laughs> those are always handy things. And... Um, um, they gave us uh, some statistics uh, on incidents of um, actually the incidence of AIDS cases. It's increasing. It's primarily among gay men, but I think that's just because people are becoming more comfortable with the subject and they're they're seeking help. And the center is open twenty four hours a day. And two of the people that were on this little panel that spoke to us were actually HIV positive. 
and they went out and and helped um, counsel mm-hmm. other people that then discover that they they have AIDS. Um, so, um, Cindy and I talked a little bit yesterday, um, but a couple things that were surprising to me. So we think of the cities as being the safe place to go if you're LGBT, but it's permeated the entire Cuban culture. Could you speak a little bit about the theater camp that you went to? Um, Okay. Well, so this club, El Mahunje, has everything there. They have an art gallery and they have performance space. And apparently on Saturday nights, they have um, drag shows and... uh, that's just in the music portion. There's also this theater por- portion, and they do outreach and go into the rural communities and perform with uh, trans actors, uh, trying to normalize um, sex equality, you know, for this macho culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, found that they were very well received. You know, they didn't come up against negative reactions. Now, of course, there's still always some people, you know, whose mindset you, you, right. you don't get through to. But um, they're continuing to do that. And we uh, have attempted to help them further that goal by providing some uh, donated camping supplies and and a computer for them to be able to, um, you know, message better and get the word out. But they do have, uh, the club again is called El Mahunje. They also uh, work with other theaters. There's another rural theater, Los Elementos, that practices permaculture, and they do more dance. And I don't know that they deal specifically with the the trans actors, but but they do work closely together. And um, that was just a, a lovely place to go. Very very remote, you know. And uh, sounds enchanting. To yeah, me. yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it it is. And I remember you saying yesterday, Rachel, how oh, it would be so late. And it's nice to be there as a visitor. You know, there are things as a citizen that. Um, most people don't have cars, and you see lots of people trying to, you know, get into work and back. It's a long haul. They do have buses. They get super crowded, you know. So um, they used to – I didn't see any this time, but I think in some instances they're still there. These folks called amarillos, which means yellow, that are in these yellow uniforms that are out on the street, that if a car is going in a certain direction and has – only one or two passengers and has space for more, they will stop the driver Wow! and have really? them give a ride to other people in need of going to that same destination. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, so I'm a little curious. Uh, did you get much of like a policy explanation about sort of recognition of LGBTQ rights in Cuba or... And please understand, I'm about as ignorant about this as perhaps, you know, LGBT. Well, I was reading something that they, uh, about uh, the transgender community um, and that the government will actually pay for surgery. Well, I just found some recent thing on a website because I have heard that and we talked about that the other day. And they're they're trying to include this uh lack of any type of discrimination within, they have a family code and a labor code and so forth. And they do not have the right, uh, I'm going off on a slight tangent, right, right, but I'll okay. get back, Welcome pull me back show. if I forget where I started, because <laughs> I always do this. But anyway, um, okay, I lost the tangent, so I'll go back to <laughs> Come back to me. <laughs> um, but um, the National Commission for Comprehensive Care of Transsexuals has attended to more than 120 applications f- um, 
Only a dozen surgeries have been performed since the Ministry of Public Health approved a certain resolution which legalizes the procedure. And that wasn't that like in 2005 or something? It wasn't. It was 2008. Yes. Well, this was 2008. This one, but um, but they're continuing to do them. They are free, and they're carried out with the application of medical protocols and. they work with this Cuban multidisciplinary society for sexuality studies. So, uh, what a mind shift, though, to imagine yeah. a government so inclusive that this would be even a thought. I mean, look at where we're at today, you guys, um, in America. Right. I mean, Cuba, this little country that has been embargoed since the fifties, mm-hmm. um, sixty about. Okay, has. Prospered. They have lower infant mortality. They have many more doctors than we do per capita. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, eye surgery, a lot of things you can get done in Cuba despite the hardships that we as a nation have put on them. I think there's two sort of interesting parts to that. One of which is, as you said, uh, the medical community in Cuba really is. Uh, in a certain way, head and shoulders above where a lot of uh, the contemporary nations or like its peers are. The other thing that I found sort of interesting, what you mentioned, Cindy, is that this has been a policy since 2008. The thing is, 120 applicants and only 12 surgeries makes me wonder how big of like this sort of little group, this branch of the public health organization, uh, how like how much can they actually accomplish? Because they're they're getting you know one and a third person, you know, through surgery. So approximately like one surgery every nine months. But there well, is a, it's road- a little unclear. Uh, yeah. No, I was just going to say there is a road to surgery. So you don't just one day decide I want surgery. So there's uh-huh. – I would I would like to know the statistic on the number of people that are taking hormones and, and where they're at in the process of being able to take the next step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's a good point that I wouldn't thought of. But it is a little ambiguous because it says that this uh, National Commission for Comprehensive Care of Transsexuals has attended to more than 120 applications and then since this resolution passed in 2008 has done a dozen. So whether some were done before that or whether it's a case of what you're saying, just the preparation for having... When, when was this article published too? I don't know an exact date, but it, it's... Is it current? It's pretty current, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. And I think that's... <laughs> Perhaps one of the biggest differences between the United States and Cuba, perhaps, is there seems to be a little bit more of a lower barrier for them as a country to say, if you identify this way and you, you've gone through the steps already, I guess, we're happy to help you. Whereas, in a sense, the only way that was sort of equivalent or available to people through the government in the U.S. was you know, through the military when Obama issued the executive order and so on and so forth. Just to play devil's advocate here, because of who the daughter is and <laughs> right. what her passion is 
you know, I mean, if it was something else, I, I, I don't want, I want us to be realistic about, you know, what might be going on over there as well, that it's wonderful and great that all this is happening, but is it, you know, someone's agenda, obviously, and is it because of that person's position of authority, or is it really the people's, you know, speaking well, and... I, I think they have a champion, thank God. Um, and, and because they have a champion, look what she's accomplished. But we talked uh, a week or two ago about Uruguay, and they now have a transgender congressman. So I think Latin America as a whole is starting to loosen up. But yeah, there's no question that her government status and celebrity has done great things for the Cuban TLGBT community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they go on to say here that they still think there's a long way to go, um, like influence people's personal behavior and so forth, but that the state institutions are on board and are working with civil society and their representatives. And, you know, so all those three entities that I mentioned that we visited, well, I also mentioned the Federation for Cuban Women, which mm-hmm. makes it forth are closely allied and work together. And Mariela Castro was very uh, supportive of um, Ramon Silverio, this guy who started this club, El Mahunje. And in some places, it's called uh, Silverio's or El Mahunje del Silverio or something. He was just a local uh, person in uh, Santa Clara who was accepting of everyone. He, I, I don't know much about his sexual orientation. He, he performs in uh, drag. I know Mm -hmm. that. Um, But um, anyway, they've brought numerous people on board. There was another local woman, um, Maria, who we were able to meet for the first time, who's part of the lesbian community. And in our discussion with them, we learned that, you know, formerly, if you're a member of the Communist Party, they frowned on, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, any um, thing other than like a straight sexual identity, I guess. but that has changed. So she's also not only part of this, uh, and they have this lovely banner that they use in their pride parades. They have pride parades there and everything uh, that uh, proclaims, you know, their lesbian group. And so she's she's proudly lesbian, also a member of the Communist Party. And then, like they were saying, they're starting to work with this metropolitan church. At you know, I know we've been talking about religion right. earlier. So <laughs> this kind of goes back to that. But that's a very accepting. Um, Churches, I understand it. I, I wanted to ask that of you. So, so the difficulty we're having now, which is being pushed into our government, is from faith-based groups. I, I assume, although the Communist Party declined it at one time, but I assume that Cuba is very Catholic. How is the church either helping or hindering the growth of the LGBT community in Cuba? Well, I think, and this is just kind of peripheral knowledge, but that the Catholic Church, just from the beginning of the revolution, um, has worked sort of closely. I mean, they were sort of marginalized for a little while there, as were anybody in the TLGB community Love that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a while, but uh, and there was kind of a, a bleak period known as the five gray years, Kincaid Greece, and I think it was the late seventies into eighty. But then they started to, you know, evolve. And I think we had similar circumstances here, you know, like uh, not to the same degree or not under right. exactly the same um, conditions. But uh, at any rate, so so I think the Catholic Church and the government are 
work pretty well in tandem. There's a lot of more evangelicals coming into Cuba, though, mm-hmm. that'll go out into the countryside. So, so evangelicalism <laughs> is growing in Cuba? <laughs> I think to some degree, yes. And uh, Sorry to say. <laughs> it's a sh- – yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to share a little more about because this club, El Mahunje, is in Santa Clara, and I've had the opportunity to visit there uh, four or five times now. In, in our trips in the early 2000s, we didn't even know of its existence, even though I think it's been there. But it's, it's grown, and it's got some support from the state. They took over a kind of rundown building and have built it up and put the art gallery and so forth. But I was looking in some Cuban travel guides at a bookstore and found no mention of it in any of those. But they do, I think, even have a Facebook page. So people in the know can can find them. Um, and um, as I searched online, it was so interesting to see the comments from people from like Ireland, Stuttgart, France, England, various, a couple like California, Florida, and so forth. And, and just... Um, their comments of feeling so welcome. Uh, Saturday night is apparently transvestite or transgender night, and they said there were like five different acts, and um, they felt that there was a great vibe and, and much dancing. And then some people just commented on, oh, you know, it's a um, nice uh, local crowd with a few uh, extranjeros or uh, visitors uh, thrown in, um, but... You know, they support local artists and so on and so forth. And um, it's just um, good that they're, they're also sharing this message through through the rural theater like um, I had. Uh, I want to go. Okay. Yeah. So how did you get connected with, like, all of this? I mean, you know. Okay. Well, uh, I'm part of the Cuba Sister City Group. Oh, and actually, we have a blog. It's kubamistad.wordpress.com. It's not been updated since this last year. Say that trip. again. Yeah, say Kubamistad.wordpress.com. And hopefully, if the changes with FCC don't mean that we have to start paying for it, we'll still have it. Uh, but anyway. Um, and anyway, we formed a sister city in the late 90s. It actually went through a resolution at City Hall, and there was a large group of about 21 of us that went in either 2000 or 2001. Some of them were members of uh, city council. Chris Gall, our mm-hmm. current um, prosecutor, was one of the people who went. Um, and like I said, at that time, we didn't know about this club, but we made a good connection with the Institute, um, Cuban Institute for Friendship with the People, of which there's one in every province. And uh, through them, we were able to um, grow the sister city relationship and Santa Clara, well, for the whole province of Villa Clara is one of only two of such entities that have a little guest house as part of their whole office space. So that's where we, we stay now. And uh, it just, you know, feels very, very homey. Um, but we had licenses to go uh, twice as a humanitarian license and we took some medical supplies down and then in 2003, about 10 of us went on a license, uh, educational license mm-hmm. that had been granted to the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. So we became members of that. I've been a member of that anyway. Right. But um, they kind of got hassled by the government for extending their license so broadly. But then it was a matter, do we apply for another license? We have to jump through all these hoops. Do we want to really do that? Because there's also groups that go that we support, Pastors for Peace, that goes Mm -hmm. and says, why should we have to have a license? We can go anywhere else without a license. Um, And it's just unjust, unfair, and so forth. And so we've supported, and several local people have gone um, in that 
uh, manner to, to Cuba. Um, but so we just continued the relationship. We finally, uh, in 2013, at the very end of 2013, had decided to go ahead and apply for a people-to-people license because mm-hmm. they have these different categories. And they're all listed under the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is part of the Treasury Department. Um, so they said, okay, you can go. You have to have like at least 40 hours a week of educational exchange as part of this, you know, and, and you have to keep your records for five years in case they come and ask you what you did. Um, but we had a delegation go in May of that year. And then since the license was going to expire at the end of the year, we thought, well, let's go again in December. <laughs> so we had another group. Each of those were about a dozen people. And then we were there December 17th of 2014, which was when uh, Barack Obama and mm-hmm. Raul Castro got on right. the phone or whatever. The U.S. released the um, Cuban five. Well, there were only four. One right, had been already right. released. And then uh, there was a little exchange of Alan Gross and then a kind of more hush-hush one of somebody who'd been kept prisoner right. who had worked for the CIA right. or something like that. Um, so then we had precedent to go under having had that license, so we can just pretty much take advantage of that now um, because it opened up with Obama. Trump has clamped down. He said there's certain places. Right. Actually, one hotel that we had stayed in before, Ambos Mundos, which was the Ernest Hemingway Hotel, is on that list um, of places you're not supposed to go because... or spend money because – well, one of the reasons that I've heard is that anything that has military involvement, and there's a lot of close liaisons right. just as here right. between the, the military and the state. And so um, those are off limits. And um, Perhaps we can get that made into a Trump hotel and then we'd be yeah, able then. to send of people course, over yes. there. And, you know, and I'm really surprised that he – because he had tried to uh, set up some kind of business, kind of hush-hush back in – I don't know. Sometime 2012, when, I, I forget the well, exact I'm sure date. He's probably squishing everybody out so he can go back in eventually. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, uh, and, I, and, I, and I know you can't answer this per this is a fact, right. but um, if people are obviously in the LGBT community, as I'm pretty obvious as I walk around, I would I would be able to feel pretty comfortable about any place I went in Cuba and be able to just enjoy life and not be well there's, there's so many places I've not been in Cuba that like you're right I can't say per se speak I can speak know. about Santa Clara and and the attitudes that I've heard from people within that community uh-huh. definitely wow. and the official the official stance of course like I was telling you the other day you know uh, sexual rights are a human right and they're going to defend them in the workplace in the schools they started at a very young age with you know uh, sex education um, and just making everybody feel comfortable with their own sexuality and making those around them mm-hmm. you know or working to get them to be more understanding and accepting that's exciting mm-hmm. were you able to talk to like individuals and just have kind of those you know just campfire conversations Yes. I mean, I speak enough Spanish that, that I can. Uh, since our early trips, when we started going in 2014, um, this group that has the guest house where we stay has a liaison with a travel agency. So now they, when we send our request of what we want to do, it's filtered through them. They provide transportation and a um, tour guide translator because often uh, – Members, usually at least half of them, mm-hmm. don't speak 
Spanish right. to any degree to you know be well understood or make themselves or, or understand others. Um, so, but there's a lot of people there that speak English as well. Right. So you get you know different stories from different people. Just you know, it's not monolithic. Was, so. And did you have to f- finance it yourself? Yes, it, the trips are self self financed. So, but ours are so incredibly less than the ones you see in the New York Times or these specialized right. ones that go for music or go for... I know somebody, WFHB, that does the blues show went on a birding trip, uh, Bob Kessel. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to get there. What was your flight, if I can ask? What did it cost you to go? The flight was under $500. That was Indianapolis to Fort Lauderdale on and then back um, and free, two bags free because it was Southwest. Oh, there you go. Well, cool. <laughs> <Don't> plug in. <laughs> hey, that's our show for tonight. Um, special thank you to Cindy Hall for coming on and sharing a little bit about Cuba with us. Uh, bl- to be. <laughs> Blooming Out is produced by Alex Ashkin. Our executive producer and engineer for tonight is WFHB News Director Wes Martin. And for Blooming Out and WFHB, I'm Frankie Preslav. I'm Alex Ashkin. And I'm Rachel Jones. Tune in next week for a brand new Blooming Out every Thursday from 5.30 to 6.30 on WFHB Volunteer-Powered Community Radio. Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus radio program, airs every Thursday evening here on WFHB at 5.30 p.m. You can also stream us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WFHB.org or BloomingOut.com. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week to Blooming Out.